Hello, my name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Import Cinema Club. And today, we're going through the top ten of 2019. The definitive list. You won't have to watch any other movies from this year. Boy, Justin, I hate this annual episode, <laughs> but here we are. You know are. what? It's the one that gets the most clicks, Will. That's right. Um... Why don't I like this episode? I think some of it has to do with the fact that we're talking about movies that have come out over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. And so your memory gets a little foggy. Oh, thank God for Letterboxd. Thank God for Letterboxd. <laughs> I don't like it because... Um, so I, I guess I have a sort of ranked list. I don't think you do this nope, year. No, I don't. Oftentimes, tradition has it be a ranked list. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. <laughs> means nothing. Is seven better than eight? I don't, I don't think so. And another thing is... I shouldn't find it stressful. Mm-hmm. It's it's, it's not stressful. It, do, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And yet, uh, oftentimes what happens is when you're, when you're making a list, there are like three to seven slam dunks that you know are going to be on there. And then under that, there could be 15 movies that are like, oh, what, what am I going to choose from these 15 <laughs> movies? Yes. So that becomes, that becomes difficult and uh, stuff gets left off. Has anybody ever been like, how did you not include this movie on your list? No, because nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about my <laughs> yeah. list. So it's really funny to be like stressed out as you're filling this in. I know. And, and I know that. I know that too. And then. <laughs> if somebody was like, how, how did you not leave this movie? And it's like a movie that you know, I'd be like, man, this person sucks. Yeah. <laughs> But if someone's like, how did you not uh, leave this movie? It was a movie I didn't know. I'd be like, ooh, what's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but other than that, it's like, I understand what you mean. Is I didn't make lists forever until we started doing this podcast. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. We, d- we have the same conversation every year, which is like, it's either people, they just want to show off. Like, look at all the good stuff I saw. Yeah. <laughs> this is what is good. But look, do you ever find yourself falling into that trap too? The, the performative trap? No. No, never. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, The only thing that I do like lists and wanting to is to share stuff with people and not for it to be like, you let them know Justin showed you the way. It's more like, oh, yeah, check this out because it's great. But but then I also, okay, so I enjoyed doing our top 10 of the decade list because it was a huge pool to choose from. Yes. And with this. Another thing that sucks about end of year list is you often have it's just the same movies on every list. Yeah. So it's like, oh boy, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again. Yeah, for, I could, foreshadowing. I couldn't get my uh, issue of Cage Cinema out to like look at what obscure. <laughs> oh yeah, this Bruno Dumont film yeah. I haven't included. And so then there becomes a part of you, or at least it becomes a part of me that becomes like, okay, well, what obscure thing can I put on here? What <laughs> yes. can be the one that I recommend people check out? Yeah. Uh, and we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> yep, we will. Yeah. I mean, let's just get started. My uh, list is not ranked, but what I will do is I'm going to go backwards and just talk about the movies as I listed them. Okay. So it was like, okay, I know this wants to be on my list, this on my list, and then there's like five more slots, and I'm like, ah, I don't know. What else am I going to include? <laughs> so I'm going to say why I'm doing a ranked list. The reason I'm doing a ranked list is because I want to crescendo. <laughs> I want to build suspense. Yes. I want to, and that's the only reason. That's the only Let's reason. Let's give it some structure. Yeah. Listen, you need to reach that once upon a time in Hollywood Venice at the beginning. Right. I don't know Will's list either. It's published. It's out there. Common knowledge. Yeah, she doesn't care, though. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I know what Will likes. It's, oh, I know what you ma- like, too. I don't give a shit. Maybe you could, um, well, you, you do care about my opinion, Will. Well, I care about your opinion. <laughs> but you don't care about times. my 10. I don't 10 care <laughs> what what your number nine is. Am I going to say something that you've never seen? No, you know all these movies. <laughs> I think there's going to be one on there, at least one that you mentioned to me that I haven't seen. Yes, that's so, true. There, there are usually a few on your list I haven't seen. Uh, this year is probably the most Hollywood heavy of 
all the years we've done it. Okay. And there's a bunch of movies I wrote down around the holiday season being like, gotta check these out. And this morning when I opened it up, I went, oh man, I didn't watch these movies. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> all right. So, so why don't you start? Yeah, so my first is Atlantic Spy, Maddie Diop. Did you see this one? No, not yet. Ah, it's great. It's on Netflix. I think it became like a Netflix original or something like that. Okay. So they picked it up. Uh, Maddie Diop is an actor that appeared in a lot of Claire Denis films. Uh, and this is her first directorial feature-likes effort. And the way that I want to sell it to people is it's a different take on I Walked as a Zombie. And that's all. Uh, that's what I'll leave it uh, as. I don't want to talk about it too much. I've heard people like describe it and they've either gotten it like weirdly wrong. Like, people say it takes place in the near future. And it's like, no, not really. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's all I'm going to say about it. And it is a movie that you'll be watching it. And for the first 40 minutes, you're like, what is this about? Yeah. Like, like you don't quite know that you have a sense of mood and a sense of a feeling, but you, you're trying to get like what that goal is. And it's, it's abstract until suddenly it becomes clear what it is. So wow, I'm sold. That sounds great. <laughs> yes. What do you got, Will? Uh, number 10, speaking of Claire Denis, I'm starting with High Life, which is... Uh, Wait, is this a UK podcast of some sort? <laughs> no. When did it come out again? Uh, it came out, I think, in April. Here. Okay, that so makes sense. It played yeah. at TIFF. Yeah, that's before. why I was... And it was on everyone's top 10 list that year, because well, that's when they had seen it. So I'm glad you're mine. bringing it out, yeah. And it's a grueling experience. I'm actually wondering, like... You know what? I'm not going to wonder if I ranked it too low or too high, because that's <laughs> that way lies madness. Yes, that way lies madness. <laughs> yep. But it's a grueling experience, but one that has stuck with me ever since I've seen it. You know, the plot, roughly speaking, is a gang of prisoners are on this uh, ship to the outer reaches of the galaxy, and they're forced to do these strange sexual experiments by this, let's call her a mad scientist, played by <laughs> Juliette Binoche. Yeah. Uh, Lover of the fuckbox. They live a life of degradation and humiliation and sexual violence. Uh, but out of it emerges life. Mm -hmm. And out of it emerges uh, a father's love for his child. And, you know, in addition to being an extraordinary kind of sensual experience, a film of great oral and visual beauty, um, it's also a film about, you know... I, I, it sounds so stupid. I, I'm turning into the most banal point, but it is sort of a, a film about, you know, hope emerging in the worst of circumstances. Mm -hmm. I saw this movie at TIFF and it didn't really do much for me, but I remember I saw it the first day of TIFF when you're all like excited and I was like, well, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch something else. Right. You, you, so I feel like if I watch it again now, I would probably get more out of it in the comfort of my own home. I might have a similar experience too, because when I saw it, the only time I've seen it, yeah. I was a bit overwhelmed by just how unpleasant it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want Robert Pattinson, who I don't know if he's a good actor from Twilight and all this stuff. Oh yeah. That sparkly vampire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want him like saying yucks and catch lines. That's, that's what he's known for, right? That's right. <laughs> so, uh, I have, Robert Pattinson film on my list. It is The Lighthouse, Robert Eggers' uh, film. I caught up with that over the holidays. Yeah, I speaking of TIFF, I saw it was a TIFF as well the first day, mm -hmm. and I just found it overwhelming an experience. Yeah. Just loud and big and very funny. Uh -huh. I just laughed my ass off watching it. I'm glad to hear that you laughed your ass off, because I have to say, when I saw it, I, I respected it more than I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I found it a really brutal experience. I thought it was... <laughs> I, I, I thought it was hilarious the yeah. entire way through. You know what? You're right, actually. <laughs> it literally ends with what seems like a parody of the ending of The Witch, where you get the big climactic moment, and then Robert Pattinson falls down some stairs, <laughs> like 
Dwayne Johnson in The Rock falling down a hill. Yeah, the second of Robert Pattinson's two bodily fluids films. <laughs> That's right. I mean, uh, everyone said this, uh, as I will probably um, sing the refrain every movie that we talk about, but... Uh, William Defoe doing the sea captain from The Simpsons. I thought so that was funny. a unique insight I had, but apparently everyone has said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just thought that it's a movie that I thought a lot about watching it mm-hmm. and the way that it tells like a Lovecraftian story without being the horror film that you think it will be mm-hmm. when it is Lovecraft through and through. Tentacles, yeah. fucking sea life. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. all there. And I just thought it, it stuck with me, images of it. And because you said it was a brutal experience, I did not find it a brutal experience. It's something that I would return to as opposed to something like Robert Eggers the witch which while I respected is not something I'd be like gotta watch it again because I was like I got it yeah moving on well you know I feel like the lighthouse is a fun house I can visit again okay (laughs) yes so number nine parasite yeah who cares not on my list not on your list yeah I, I was like eh, I don't need to talk about Parasite yeah. I, I'm, when I first, it's great though when I first started talking about the list to Will I was like yeah there's some that are not going to be on it because everyone's going to talk about yeah. it that's like the way that I approach well, this is a bit- Parasite should be like it would be in my like top three probably because like I saw it I was very moved by it mm-hmm. I thought it was great and yeah that's it this is why I do find these you know end of year lists a little boring because yeah Parasite's like Parasite's just like obviously one of the best. Yeah, but maybe a listener's like, hmm, yes, I do like Parasite, which means I have good taste. <laughs> okay, well, listen, folks, if you like Parasite, yeah. uh, I think you're right. Do you think it could win Best Picture at the Oscars? Because I think it could. I think it's unlikely, but I, because there's like no like it's a big, consensus it, choice. Yeah, it is. There's no big like front runner, if you know what I mean. I don't think it will just because typically if it wins best foreign film, yes. that becomes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, baby. Yeah. Or Amour is another example. Oh, did that get nominated that for got, foreign film? Yeah. And that got nominated for best picture too. And typically if it's nominated for a foreign film, they just decide that that's, that's enough. Yeah. Because the the voters who are usually dum-dums are like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I already voted for best foreign film. I'm not going to vote for it as well as best picture. But the fact that they have preferential balloting for best picture now. Oh, that's right. Would, maybe play in Parasite's favor. <laughs> yeah, the spotlight of 2020. That <laughs> Parasite is nothing like spotlight, no. but it is like a consensus that like anyone watching that movie and going, this is terrible. Like a woman that I met on the subway who thought the film was racist. Oh, come on. Because of the Native American headgear in that I don't scene? Think, no, I don't think that's what it was. I think she was using racism in an incorrect context and she thought it was classist. Oh. Like she thought that like the poor people were uh, poorly portrayed or something like that. Oh, and give it's me like, a break. Yeah, I don't think, <laughs> she was very rich. She kept talking about her and her, uh, uh, her people were going to go see movies. So obviously she was like a boss of something. Company. She watched it in there and she was like, you can't trust the help. <laughs> That's probably what it was. It's like, uh, my help is very respectable to me. She said, we cannot let this happen. <laughs> yes, we have to crush I'm checking up. my basement right now. <laughs> All right, what's your next one? Uh, so my next one is uh, Little Women, which I only saw yesterday. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to add it to the list. I'm sure you haven't seen uh, it yet. No, but I plan to. Great movie. Mm-hmm. I have never seen, because I'm a man, any adaptation of Little Women ever. Have not read the book, I see. No, I have not read the book. Yeah. Have you? No, I hear I hear the movie is a little difficult to follow. Uh, it's not. Okay. <laughs> I've seen she very clearly uh, uses visual cutting and both storylines uh, or time periods have different color palettes. One of them is very warm and one of them is very blue. It's not very hard to follow. I've never read the novel. I knew exactly every time 
period that we were in. Okay. Uh, I think that the cross-cutting is very smart. I think that it creates an emotional resonance that just reading summaries of what the novels were um, isn't there, that you can create meaning that is in the text but isn't like back to back with itself Mm -hmm. and it's funny it's fun it's not like a radical reinvention or anything it's not like this ain't your dad's little women there is one (laughs) I mean a lot of people have mentioned it there's a very dissonant note where near the end of the film the father that they keep talking about comes in and it's Bob Odenkirk and he's like Merry Christmas and it's impossible (laughs) not to feel like a Mr. Show sketch (laughs) but everybody every actor is great in this movie I just thought it was very moving and I think it will become the definitive version of this text saying someone who has never read the book or seen any other version is saying this now right. me <laughs> what do you got next will uh, it'll displace the book itself <laughs> yeah. throw it in a fire uh, number eight i wanted to put a bollywood movie on the list justin and i have been enjoying bollywood a lot mm-hmm. lately um so i i rather arbitrarily picked one called so i'm not gonna be able to pronounce the title but it's called sai ra narasima ready yeah that one's on my list too okay well let's talk about yeah Syra, which did, we didn't even talk about at the end of an episode did we uh we might maybe, not have. maybe so Syra is uh, the story of a um, a rebellious figure against the British regime that um, supposedly is not written much about in the history books of yeah. India, but two white guys here, we don't know any better. Yeah, and I truly do not at all trust any of the history depicted in this film because because you <laughs> but know that's why it's good this is that's not, why it's making the list this is not a big spoiler but it actually ends with him being beheaded and his body still sword fighting <laughs> yes. after he's beheaded this is the kind <laughs> of uh political propaganda i can get behind a hundred percent super fun ridiculous yeah just big and cartoony in a way a lot of indian action films are but it's also because it's against like white I'm like, yes. Yeah, the politics don't seem too bad to me. No, yeah. You mean they're brutally killing all of this, these um, colonialists that are in India? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Including the big bad who looks like Gavin McInnes. <laughs> he does look like Gavin McInnes, who is uncredited in the film. They probably just picked him up at the bus station. <laughs> I looked and he was in like a couple of shorts. Yeah. And then this movie, which he has a big role in. And the sub-villain of the first part, because it's Bollywood, there's two parts with an intermission, mm-hmm. looks exactly like Christian Bale. <laughs> and I would just like to encourage people to you know dip into your amazon prime check out there's your so many indian movies on there uh you know another one that uh, i know i justin, was hoping you were gonna bring it up <laughs> justin recommended to me over the holidays was war mm. with hirithik roshan which is a, a really fun and funny action extravaganza which it's it's sort of like mission impossible face off yes uh, james bond it's all, all that in stuff, there but with great action scenes really great action scenes and like I'm sure there's a sense of irony to it, but it's like irony, like in the Fast and the Furious sense, where it's like, these guys are cool. Look how cool they are. It's as homoerotic as any action movie since The Killer. But also weirdly literal, because at one point a woman goes, oh, I wish I could marry you, um, uh, the lead star. And then the other guy goes, get in line. Yeah, that was bold. <laughs> yeah, that was bold. Yeah, that one is super fun. I showed it to my brother and his girlfriend during Christmas and they had a blast. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I could put like, I've been watching a bunch of Indian films and there's some other ones that I could be like, oh, I don't know. Would I put this one? Like Sarah, War, uh, there's some other ones. What was that, that Saho? Yeah, Saho, Saho. Yeah. which is like the ultimate version of Fast and the Furious. Ah, love that movie. So good. That could have been made this list too. We saw that one uh, together. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll go next because we both uh, said Sarah. Um, I'm going to talk about 
Uncut Gems. Okay, which is on my list too. Yeah, uh, probably a little bit higher. It's I would number say. three on number mine. three. Yeah. Now we talked a lot about. Um, you know, this movie coming out. And I think that it delivered exactly what we hoped it would. <laughs> like, this was not the um, Safties. It was not a swing and a miss. It's yeah. like just building on. I, you know what? I think all of their films have made my top 10 list since heaven knows what. Since we've yeah. been doing this. Uh, mine, mine too. Yeah. yeah. So, what did you think of Uncut Gems? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it was just an exhilarating experience. It's like going on a ride. Mm-hmm. Um, does uh, this open doors for Adam Sandler as if he needs more doors open? Or does it, or like, I'd be curious if Adam Sandler's like, you know, maybe I'll take more chances now. I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that kind of everybody I know is seeing Uncut Gems. And, and people are loving it too. People are loving I mean, we've been hearing these reports of people in the Midwest or whatever, Adam Sandler fans going on Christmas Day, yes. being confused and upset. <laughs> oh, have they? I've not seen yeah, any of those like, look at these yokels uh, news reporting but I do yeah there's a lot of that yeah but but generally I mean at least in Toronto here it seems like everybody I know is going to see it because it just seems like it's the right movie at the right time mm-hmm. like all the people who grew up with Adam Sandler are our age now yeah and are ready for him in something like this mm-hmm. and I mean Sandler's always been kind of like threatening to do something like this I mean he has punch drunk love but now he's got this and he can rest his laurels on it go back to Netflix make a bunch of more movies with David Spade and Rob Schneider I mean, it's great to see him engaged, and it's yeah. also great to be reminded of how little a difference there is between Sandler's character in this and, and in Sandler in the other movies, other films, because he's really not significantly less likable in this than he is in Big Daddy. <laughs> but I think the difference is that Big Daddy is like, look at this cool guy, and now he's got his redemption. While this movie's like, nope. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you got to see it. We won't spoil it. Everybody listening to this has probably seen it. Unless, you know, you don't live in a big city. <laughs> I mean, Which, it, I'm sorry. I mean, he's amazing in the movie because, like, he's going full Sandler and his voice is so hard. He's talking almost nonstop through this movie and it's really hard to take. The main reason why the film is bearable is because, like, you like Adam Sandler. You know, he's the he's the fun guy who you've known for well, years. Well, that's the, 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 the magic trick of the movie, yeah. right? Is that, like, anybody else, you'd be like, I hate this guy. Like, I just want to see his comeuppance. But because people bring that bag of Adam Sandler, yeah. this salesman who's kind of a yeah. likable guy. You're like, ah, oh, well, you know, I want to see him get out of this. And, and in some ways, he's never been more abrasive than he is in he, this film. He's never been more abrasive so there's than like, he is. And pathetic. There's a thin line between love and hate with Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> or pain and pleasure, I mean. <laughs> Indivisible. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the Safties got it. And now they can finally move on to their dream project of 48 Hours of Remake. Oh, uh, Which I actually heard collapse. Yeah, it did collapse. Yeah, but I w- Adam Sandler and who else could be in it? <laughs> oh God, uh, Kevin Hart. Yeah, sure, Kevin Hart or yeah. something like that. <laughs> I'd like to see them do something with Kevin Hart. Oh yeah, he gets a safety role. <laughs> yeah, let's let's see that. You know the little guys; they need to get um, the big breaks. Uh, what do you got, Will? I'll, I'll go next, and this is one that I actually want to talk with you about because mm. uh, I have it. I have it here at number seven on my list. Mm, I know what it is. You know, you know, because I it saw is. it and I was like, he's gonna put it on his list. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Uh, because this is in many ways a very noxious film, mm-hmm. but it's also a film that like uh, I. I, I had a great time watching. I, you know what? I would have probably put it on my list if I. If, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. continue. Um, and I mean, it's the, the filmmaker is incredibly talented, and it's a movie that has refused to leave my mind ever since I've seen it. And it is S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete. <laughs> S. Craig Zoller, who had appeared on my top ten, was Bone Tomahawk, That's I right. believe. I don't think Brawl and Cell Block '99 did. Yeah. So this is a movie. Great performances. Just great style. It's probably his first film that like looks genuinely great. Like it doesn't look cheap. Like his yeah. other two movies do and it definitely feels like 
kind of an, an evolution. Like he's taking his style to the next level in this one. Mm-hmm. So it's about these two disgraced police officers who have been suspended for police brutality, played by uh, your favorites and mine, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, these are guys... A liberal and a Republican <laughs> fighting it out, right? Oh, wait, uh, no, I just looked at Vince Vaughn. Yeah, libertarian and <laughs> yeah. a Republican. <laughs> That's right. And these are two cops who are just a little bit a little bit tired of this PC society that we have around us, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I mean, Don Johnson shows up to literally verbalize that, like, ah, you know, the PC, it's getting getting bad. But as Don Johnson also says to Mel Gibson, hey, you went a little too far. You used to be my partner. You didn't used to be like this. Yes, that's right. So Zoller... Listen, we know what side Zoller's on, and yet he's enough of an artist to leave room for disagreement and uh, uh, ambiguity. I mean, I wrote a review about this when it came out, yeah. and I love S. Craig Zoller. I just love his fiction, his, like, uh, he writes, like, Western novels, and he did some just detective fiction. Love Bone Tomahawk, love Br- Br- uh, Brawl and 99, love this movie, yeah. but it's just so racist. Yeah. <laughs> and it's And it's... People can argue that it's not because the whole film, especially Dragged Across Concrete, is structured in a way where it's like, oh, you know, we're following these racist cops. Oh, whoop, gotcha. You're the racist viewer if you uh, saw this movie was racist. Uh-huh. So I definitely think S. Craig Zoller's a racist. Yes. Um, it's cumulative. Like, I've read his book. I was sending yeah. Will. I was reading one of the books I've had on the shelf for a while. Yeah. Um, and it's like every minority is described by their ethnicity, yeah. except for white people who their names just appear. And I don't want to make apologies for this because there's a scene in Dragged Across Concrete that I think is really, like, mm-hmm. bad and ugly. Yeah. And you know the one I'm talking about. I know about. the one you're talking so, about. So, yeah. so yeah, people will know when they watch it, though. I, I will just say that it's about these two cops because money isn't coming in. They're going to uh, hold up a hold up, basically. Yeah. And the hold up is uh, b- being done by these two, you know, European super criminals and these two black guys that they mm. fired. And the, the noxious scene involves one black guy who has died. Yes. Uh, and that's the scene in particular that has been kind of like bothering me ever since mm-hmm. I saw it. Uh, Michael J. White, great in this film too. He's he's fantastic, yeah. and and I mean this is the thing about Zoller. It's like he leaves enough enough room, breadcrumbs, enough to... enough breadcrumbs, and I I mean it, it's not it's not I'm not gonna say it's not a racist movie. But yes, it's like it's not it's not strictly a racist movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if it was, I mean you'd have nothing to talk about, right? Yeah, and it because it, they give you enough like rope to hang yourself. Essentially, <laughs> it's just like I wrote a review. If people want to check it on Letterbox, where it's essentially like. I've seen enough of his work that yeah. it's not like I could defend like Bone Tomahawk being like, oh, yeah, but the Native Americans are portrayed as a whole different race. Uh-huh. They're not indigenous people in the sense like he doesn't view them as monsters. They've been an indigenous tracker that appears and explains that they're different. So here's a scene that's an example of why I find Zoller hard to dismiss mm-hmm. despite all of this. It's early on when Mel Gibson is at home with his wife. Yeah. And and their daughter has, I guess, been hurt by uh, some black kids yeah. on the way to school. And the wife says something like, uh, I didn't used to think I was racist, but I've been living in this neighborhood uh, for too long. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of uh, the, the movie doesn't the movie doesn't do anything with that. It just it just leaves it at that. Later on, of course, Vince Vaughn's wife, I guess, is mixed race. Yes. Um, and and, you know, at the end, uh, the black guy that mel gibson is dealing with at the end is sort of the most reasonable character in the movie yes but that 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 early scene with him and his wife is so ugly and yet there's something so so real and raw about it these are the kind of conversations that happen Mm -hmm. and it's it's incredible to see it actually depicted in a movie this way without any sort of adornment what i think is 
you know, you could argue that, like, you know, maybe Zoller doesn't actually believe this. Like, maybe... I think maybe he's engaged He's with engaged, it. or like he's trolling with it. Like, he's like, yeah. I want to... You know, he's a big lover of that kind of, like, underground, August underground kind sure. of stuff. But even if that scene I just described is a troll, I yeah. think it's a valuable troll. I, I understand, but it's just... Because it just, again, it's cumulative, right? Yeah. Where yeah, it's yeah. like, it's... it's you, you can't not deal with it when I experience this in all of his work. Yes. And then when he does interviews, he's like, you know... I don't really want to make a political movie. It's just, yeah. it's like, come on, dude. That's exactly what you're doing. I, if he came out and was like, yeah, I want people to confront these things that are real yeah. and have to deal with them in this movie, that would be a more of a good faith argument than right. kind of like, you see the politics you want to see in, in the pictures that I make. So everything I've seen of this guy, yeah. every interview I've read with him, it, like, I don't like the guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, will will I see his next movie? Of course I will. Yeah. I and, love all the movies and, he made. And I mean... Again, not to dismiss all that stuff because yeah. all that stuff's very real, but talking about the style of the film and how he has uh, evolved as a stylist, this is a movie that it's two and a half hours long and uh, it, it's very minimal for mm -hmm. so much of it. It's like Takeshi Kitano. It's a film where there are these sudden bursts of uh, humor and violence along with uh, long periods of kind of nothing yeah. where you observe human behavior. But I don't think it's ever boring, though. Never boring. It's never boring. Yeah. So it's like... It, there's almost such a control around the films that he's making. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, he said his next picture is going to be a family film. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am too. Look, I mean, yeah, I, it's such a yeah. weird struggle, right? Because I, when I open the Fangoria, he writes an article in the in the a column, yeah, a column, yeah. and I'm always interested because he talks about like underground films oftentimes that i've never heard like very passionately and stuff like that mm -hmm. so ah why does he have to be so what's your next one uh my next one is marriage story yes. uh netflix film noah bomback the people's director oh yeah <laughs> finally giving people the stories the that white them middle class macarthur genius grant winners <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> struggling with father figures um this is one that I, you know, my emotional reaction to it is, is just because I think it reflects what I went through as a kid. I mean, yeah, I mean, the joke mm -hmm. is that Adam Driver lives in a giant apartment in L.A. And yeah. while my father, when uh, he divorced my mother, lived in a tiny apartment filled with ants. Yeah. I don't necessarily <laughs> hold it against this movie that it's kind no. of an upper class film. Well, I mean, he's just reflecting his own yeah. kind of um, upbringing, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or not his upbringing. His, his life. Yeah, what he went through. Yeah. And I think all the performances are all valid. I can agree that the film is slanted more toward Adam Driver after starting about being about Scarlett Johansson because Noah Baumbach's like, well, I want to tell my story. Right. <laughs> like, that's what I want to move towards. What's funny is that my dad and my stepmom watched it and they hated it because they were like, eh, it's too real. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm interested to hear that because I like this movie mm -hmm. and this isn't really a complaint about the movie so much uh, uh, because the movie is the movie it is. Yeah. But I, something I miss in Noah Baumbach's movies is how kind of hard and ugly they used to be mm -hmm. like in the squid and the whale the jeff daniels character is a real bastard yeah that. i think that what's funny about a marriage story is a lot of people have been like oh this character's a piece of shit or this character's a piece of shit in kind of like they've still pick sides with the two people in the story which is I kind did, of i didn't unfathomable i mean honestly scarlett johansson is in the right she's been following adam driver this whole time how yeah. about adam driver give her like a chance to do what she wants to do as opposed to just like ta like you know yeah. working at his whims you got to bend a little bit, driver. <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in uh, Noah Baumbach's movies, the the father character used to be a lot worse when it was actually just based on, on his, his father. Dad. But, but now, now when it's based on him, yeah. he's kind of, you know, he's a nice guy who can have some bursts of anger.
anger as well. Yeah. Um, so what's your next one, Will? Uh, oh, speaking of problematic directors, uh, you probably know where I'm going with this one. A rainy day in New York. Uh, no. It, oh, it's, I know exactly it, where you're going with this. I, so I, it took me a moment. I was like, huh? I, uh, I can okay. I can hear you sighing and, and moaning already. But uh, what can I say? I love this guy. But this movie does have one huge flaw in it. Mm. Uh, so the movie is, of course, Richard Jewell by yep. Clint Eastwood. Uh, I agree with everyone who says that the Olivia Wilde character is a huge problem. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, I think the Paul Walter Hauser character is incredible. Mm. And something I like about this movie was so I like Clint Eastwood's late period style where it's where it's so unadorned. Uh, where, He's telling the story of the everyman. So, well, the thing is, he is telling the story of the everyman. And like, this is a movie that opens with him, you know, j- just kind of a, a loser guy who's working as a rent-a-cop. Or no, he, he's he's working in wherever uh, Sam Rockwell's uh, law firm is, and he's going to go train to be a cop. He doesn't get to be a cop. Uh, Sam Rockwell says to him, "Now don't be an asshole." And then the next scene is him being an asshole mm-hmm. and being, a real observant report, if you will. <laughs> it is a real observant report. He's just being a, being an asshole at a college dorm. And then the next scene is him getting fired from that college dorm. It's just scene after scene of him being, you know, kind kind of an idiot and a loser without without any real comment. Yeah. And then finally, when he discovers the bomb, the one heroic act he's ever done, it's just another example of him wanting to be a hero. It's another example of him being like, oh, uh, we got to follow protocol because I'm a real cop. Is this like the first Clint Eastwood movie in a long time, which does it like paint a holy light around its everyday protagonist? You know... I, I wonder, I mean, the 1517 to Paris obviously likes its heroes, but they're... The Mule likes its heroes, yeah. and so does American Sniper like its hero. Yeah, but I think this is the one uh, out of those... Yeah, the one that's the most difficult with its protagonist. Yeah, because those... Because he's not a hunky man, well, so I mean, we could treat him like a weirdo. I wouldn't necessarily say those characters have halos around them. No, but, yeah, but, but they, they're they the yeah. good guys. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but this guy, <laughs> I mean, it's great that he cast Paul Walter Hauser instead of Jonah Hill, who was originally going to do it. That would have not worked it wouldn't have worked because this guy really is this guy like this guy <laughs> I, I mean i don't know what he's like in real life but this guy i mean he's just a great actor and you bring no baggage to the role yeah and he seems like he seems like a guy who shouldn't be starring in a movie mm-hmm. and yeah the, actually the whole cast is good even olivia wilde is good with the unplayable material she's been yes doing. so what's your next one uh my next one is you know you may be shocked it's richard jewell <laughs> no, it's not <laughs> I was actually really happy for a sec. Will's eyes widened. I, I lit up. I was... <laughs> no, uh, my next one is... You know what? I'm going to skip over this because I know it's going to come up on your list. And this one won't. Knives Out is on my list. Yeah, so this is actually my number 11. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. I actually really like Knives Out. Knives Out is great. And yeah. I think that when I saw it and I loved it, and I was thinking of like, well, I'm going to give it five stars. Should I? And I sat back and said, what is a like the best versions of these stories in cinematic form. And, you know, people can talk about like, oh, well, you know, Murder on the Orient Express or this other stuff. And I'm like, "Mm, yeah, but I don't like it as much as Knives Out. (laughs) But, you know, when you look at movies that have tried to do this sort of thing in recent years, you know, Mordecai or or the Kenneth Branagh Murders on the Orient Express, this is the only one to really get it right. Yes, and and to create, you know, I mean, you could we could talk about Knives Out for a while and like the idea that like, the mystery doesn't actually matter for like half the movie mm-hmm. because it's a transference of guilt and it's mm-hmm. a different film that the trailer and whatever mm-hmm. sells it as and that it's dealing with like, um, you know, cultural stuff around the protagonist mm-hmm. that is revealed in the picture. And, you know, it's just neoliberal propaganda. Not a fan. Oh, <laughs> Moving yeah, right. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, the movie has the like kind of the perfect tone. Mm-hmm. And, like it's it's serious about about 
the things it's serious oh, about, but it has a lightness. When I saw the trailer, I was like, uh, no thanks, like a big goofy murder That's mystery. That's exactly my reaction, too, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, Daniel Craig... Uh, uh, so fun. You know, bring, ...brings a lot to it. And when the mystery gets solved at the end, it's incredibly satisfying. And it's not even one of those things where it's like, oh, well, I guessed who the murderer was or whatever. It's also like it coming together and the way the puzzle pieces were like laid out that you're yeah. like, oh yeah, that's really smart and fun. Yeah. And I'm actually invis- invested in this. Like I watched a bunch of Poirot films afterwards and mm. I'm like, these are fun, but they're also directed by like James Bond directors. So they're like two hours and change yeah. and they're super baggy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not a wasted minute in this movie. And I mm-hmm. think Ryan Johnson is just like the sort of guy who, you know, he has an attention to detail. What's your next one, Will? So, the, the, I mean, uh, I know this one's probably not going to be on your list, but uh, <laughs> it was made it, it, almost explicitly for me. It's Rolling Thunder Review by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, I didn't even see it. Bob Dylan documentary. I just had a great time. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's all you need. I mean, that, that's all. So It's like five hours long, like all the Martin Scorsese documentaries, right? I think it's probably two and a half. I feel like Martin Scorsese, like, as a director of a documentary, I wonder what his actual job is. It's like, someone shows him a cut, he's like, yeah, that's fine. I, I wonder that, too, because I don't, he wasn't involved in the interviews of this no. movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he shaped he's like, the material in yeah, some way. Yeah, I did a um, documentary on the, what is it, New York Times Review of Books? Yeah, and it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure you did, Marty. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> that one had a co-director on it. Yeah, it did. But... This one, I mean, what more do you want? It's got a ton of beautiful remastered footage of the Rolling Thunder Review tour that Bob Dylan did. It's got incredible behind-the-scenes footage. And <laughs> I like how you like. I don't know if this will make your list. <laughs> I did. I said. I said. I think my exact words were, "I know it won't make your oh, list." Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'm about to surprise you, Will, because now, so Bob Dylan fans, I mean, apply because yeah. you'll love it. And also. I mean, I assume Scorsese was the one who brought this, but the uh, kooky structure that he does bringing in fictional elements like Mm. a fictional German filmmaker who is supposedly chronicling the tour or Michael Murphy appears as Tanner from Tanner 88. Oh, really? Just as an interviewee who's talking about, oh, yeah, I saw the Rolling Thunder (laughs) review. Sharon Stone is in the movie talking about how much she loved Gene Simmons (laughs) and the influence that Gene Simmons had on Bob Dylan. Not true. (laughs) So just a bunch of lies as well. Yeah, a lot of lies. And it's fun because it's for the fans because it's for the, fans. the ones who will know like that's a joke that is false it's for me yeah it's for you yeah. so uh my next one is 20th century technically a cheat because it hasn't opened wide or anything uh, like that it played in toronto it did play in toronto uh probably just because it needs to play in toronto mm. to qualify for the canadian screen awards mm. otherwise if it doesn't do that then it can't be nominated mm. this is a film we saw at midnight man did you end up seeing it uh no i missed it during its one week but i've seen 25 minutes of it oh yeah that's right because yeah. uh, a friend of ours showed it to and me. i like it very much yeah it's great and i think what's the best thing about it if people don't know it's um a biography of prime minister william Lyon mckenzie king well yeah uh no one's favorite prime minister <laughs> and that's what the whole movie's about and i think the best part is that you see the trailers and you think oh it looks like a guy madden-esque kind of surreal farce and it is but the way that it kind of hones in on an emotional center really surprised me as I was watching it because I was like, whoa, I actually care about what's happening by the end of this film. Mm-hmm. This like milk toast definition of a neoliberal and how he gets to that point, sure. even though that it involves narwhals and stuff like that. And uh, a good film about the Canadian identity. Yes, it is, which is um, whatever that is. Polite and uh, yeah, d- we're scared of everything else. So what's your next one, Will? The Beach Bomb by Harmony Kareem. Oh, what a great movie. Which I think is probably his best movie yet. Yeah, I mean, Something that I love about this movie and Spring Breakers is the attraction repulsion that he, particularly attraction that he has for this sort of like Miami Beach culture. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just a, 
a, a great neon drenched visual experience. And you've got Matthew McConaughey giving, I think, his best performance yet as Moondog, the itinerant, um, I guess, poet. <laughs> yes, he is. Who leaves uh, a trail of... Pulitzer Prize winning by the end of the movie. That's right. He, who leaves a trail of destruction in his wake and yet uh, walks away a hero loved by all. It's so good. It's really funny. You know, it's a, it's a film... I mean, it's a film where... Matthew McConaughey and Zac Efron uh, knock out and rob a disabled man. <laughs> yeah, they do. It's a, a tatted up shirtless Zac Efron. It's a film where Martin Lawrence loses his foot in a shark attack. And it's played for laughs. It's played for laughs. You know, it's a it's a movie that, um, uh, yeah, it, it it's like it presents so many awful things and just lets you enjoy it. it. But the, the best part about it is, is that the movie is essentially kind of another take on uh, Joseph Kahn's bodied, mm-hmm. which is, is like this person gets everything at the end and they're the winner and they're the underdog kind of. And they're awful. They're awful. They're an awful person. Yeah. And that's kind of what the whole movie's about. Yeah. I would even say that it's like one of Harmony Kareen's like most well-structured film. It, it, it's so off the cuff, but the way that it's edited, it feels like it was written that way to like flow into everything that's happening, even yeah. though it's very episodic. Yeah, I love this movie too. Mm-hmm. All right. So my next one is, uh, you know what? I know what your last one's going to be. How many do you have? You have two or one left? I have uh, three left. You have three left? Should, I... I, should I just say what my top three are and we can figure out? <laughs> well, okay. oh, oh, no, sorry. I, we already talked about Uncut Gems, so I have two after this. All right. So... And I think you know what they are. Yeah. So um, tell me the one that's not the one that I know. <laughs> uh, it's The Irishman. The Irishman. There that, you so go. that's my number one. That's your number one. That's my number one. Respectable number one. <laughs> but I've also seen it three times now. You watched it three times? I just watched it again with my parents over the holidays. <laughs> what did your parents think? They loved it. Okay. It really hits home for them now that they're in their 60s. Yeah. They're like, are you going to leave us alone, Will? <laughs> the fact that... Did the movie end and you turned to them and you were like, why? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the De Niro's nurse doesn't know who Jimmy Hoffa is, mm-hmm. that scene hit very strong. Really? Because they're because as they were saying, they were like, yeah, you know, like all the people that we knew uh, and were really important growing up, uh, they're retired now. People don't know who they are, and mm-hmm. why would they? Yep. You know, and and they're seeing people they know retire and become like Robert De Niro. And then they open a present, and it was like <laughs> their entrance letter to the home that you're sending them to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, The Irishman, fantastic movie. Not on my list again because I was like. Yeah, I know Will's going to put it on his list, so <laughs> yeah. I can dodge that bullet. Sure. Because I needed to make a room for Avengement. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yep. Is that your number one? Well, that's the first one I put on here. Okay. It's not my number one. It's the first one I said, what would I want to put on a top ten list? And that came to mind because I know nobody's going to put it. Actually, I saw it on a lot of top ten lists of people that I respect. The vulgar tourists. No. Just no. people that like action films. Okay. Yeah. okay. Come on, man. This is uh, Scott Atkins' joint, a revenge film. And who is Scott Atkins for the people who don't know? Scott Atkins is a martial artist. Um, he started in DTV land. He worked in Hong Kong for a while, too, mm-hmm. in late period Hong Kong action films. I, I don't know. He doesn't really have a claim to fame because I don't think that like just general audiences will recognize him by sight. Mm-hmm. Um, but he starred in the Undisputed sequels, the DTV ones, and he was also in two Ninja films, which are probably his most high-profile films. Ninja and Ninja 2 Shadow, Shadow of a Tear. Shadow of a Tear, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Avengement was, is directed by Jesse V. Johnson, who's a stuntman, and I guess him and Scott Atkins kind of got together and they've been making like almost two movies a year for a little while, and I was not a fan of them. I saw 
thought they were like sloppy and just kind of like action shot from multiple angles, which is not really my thing. You can't create flow that way. Mm-hmm. And Avengement is the opposite of that, is it's tightly structured. The story, which is like um, doing kind of fun tricks about like, oh, you thought you saw this linear progression of time. You didn't. There's pieces that you missed. Mm-hmm. And Scott Atkins, as an actor, anytime he has to do just a straight American accent, he's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Anytime he gets to do a different accent, or I believe it's close to his own in this movie, and he gets to be angry, mm, charisma gold. And that's all he is in this movie, is angry as a man who is uh, betrayed by his brother and sent to jail for like a decade, I think, mm-hmm. and becomes a scarred monster having to fight his way that entire time. And now he wants to take revenge on his brother. It's just like everything a DTV action movie should be. Great physical fights, just very tightly plotted, not a second wasted. I've watched it two or three times with different people and it's just kind of blown everybody away when they've watched it so i haven't seen it yet and it's uh, top of my list now I yeah see highly recommended all right so our last one my number two yeah your uh, it's on my it's list on your yeah list. <laughs> once upon a time in hollywood what is there to say that we have not already about this movie i would just say that it's improved in my estimations me too seen it. it's, <laughs> it's i remember that when we talked about it in the summer i had some reservations i feel like most of those reservations have kind of uh you just want to hang out with these away. cool dudes one of them who may have murdered his wife i i definitely think that is still maybe for me the most difficult aspect of Mm -hmm. the movie um but it's everything that you like (laughs) well okay but you know that that not the problematic stuff but the thing is the fact that he probably murdered his wife informs how i view the character after yes comes after i I agree as well it's like it's the fact that this this guy he's not a gunfighter who's gonna live to shoot another day no and he's not like I mean, he's he's a cool guy, but he's also like, this is the end of his life based on the choices that he made. And I think ever since I've seen it, I mean, when I first saw it in the immediate aftermath think, of seeing it, I, I was sh- kind of stunned by the ending of it. I think I saw it, I think I saw it three times in, in theaters because I saw it. You saw it the first night. night, And then I went with somebody else the Mm -hmm. second night. Was it you? No. No. And then I saw it with another friend who never gets to go out to the movies and he loved it too. Mm -hmm. And he's been kind of like when Tarantino like Kill Bill and those other stuff he was not a fan and I showed him like Django and he's like oh Tarantino doing this more like straight genre stuff that he liked more and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a a variation of that so he enjoyed it a lot especially seeing it in 70 millimeter oh, yeah. which feels so novel because we were able to do that in toronto it, fe- oh, it felt great yeah, <laughs> yeah that's why that's probably why i saw it three times too it was like what am i gonna see it like this ever again yeah probably never i mean i went to see joker on 70 millimeter a few <laughs> weeks later which wasn't even shot digitally but that is not the, I'm the, the bullet i will not take but you want to know something i enjoyed watching joker on 70 millimeter because even even that like you know what i saw batman versus superman 70 millimeter did not enjoy it so yeah yeah. well also shot did it sorry to hear that but so yeah so it rose in your estimation since you've seen it well i've been haunted by the ending of it Mm -hmm. because when i saw it originally i had that initial reaction of oh is this you know this is just the inglorious bastards ending and i also thought well wait a minute then why didn't I fell into that trap of thinking, well, why didn't Sharon Tate have more dialogue through the mm-hmm. whole movie? Yeah. What, what does this mean to my understanding of Sharon Tate's character from before? And I don't know, I've been haunted by the fact that Tarantino doesn't impose himself on Sharon Tate the way he does other historical figures. Like, he doesn't... I I think when I first saw it, I, I kept thinking, you know, why... Is she sort of like a manic pixie dream girl almost? Mm-hmm. Is he... But I think what I now see is he's giving her space, you know, to space to be. Well, it's not her story. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that would be the argument is that it, it there's elements that involve her, mm-hmm. but he, I, Tarantino has almost no interest in 
doing or showing any complexities of her as a character because I think that's too much, uh, not too much to bite off for him in this movie. But, but I also think he sort of respects that Sharon Tate mm-hmm. is is a real person and that he is not going to turn her into a Tarantino character. Now, know? the arguments I have... <laughs> against this movie and on my other podcast the basement video uh mark hansen hates this movie interesting he hates it and all of his reasons are fairly valid the kind of like manic pixie dream girling of sharon tate Mm -hmm. he also hates tarantino like late period tarantino Mm -hmm. there's that ammunition there and he would say stuff like if you want to make a western why don't you make a western i was like but he made two westerns before this yeah that is not that doesn't bother me he also didn't want to make a western that's not what this is yeah (laughs) but he does get to do western scenes and they're great so i can understand why people don't like it yeah but i mean all the stuff again i i, I said this every time i talk about the movie it's like made for me <laughs> oh yeah well it has all the stuff we like in it yeah. yes and you know watching it over like again like the way that when uh cliff boost kills one of the girls and he kind of like you know he slams her head into the mm. so many times it's like oh gross like i can't believe he's doing this and he throws her away in disgust mm. like it could be a laugh moment but it could also be like oh like, Cliff Booth is not a good guy. Like, yeah. this is how he feels about this kind I of think, stuff. I think Tarantino leaves the room for ambiguity. And it's hard to tell, though, because Tarantino loves violence. And Tarantino loves Cliff Booth as well. Like, yeah, he loves this he character. And any time that Tarantino's been kind of questioned about this, he reacts like a defensive little boy. Yeah. <laughs> Which is problematic in that sense. But I've also been haunted by the last couple shots of the movie, mm-hmm. where, like, the movie doesn't quite end on the note of catharsis that Inglorious Bastards ends on it gives you the cathartic moment that big rupture of tone but then it ends on this kind of bittersweet melancholy note where it's like he's like okay imagine if the old hollywood and the new hollywood merge imagine if cliff booth gets to be in a roman polanski movie but it doesn't happen no and that like last shot which is like the pull-up where you don't get to see sharon tate (laughs) is is just like underlining that like this is not real yeah this didn't happen this didn't happen not happen yeah yeah Uh, which i think i think it's i don't know strikes such a beautiful i'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it now it strikes such a beautiful note at the end yeah us white guys we can love tarantino (laughs) yeah yeah i know tarantino man he really gets us just white boys who like tarantino Yeah, (laughs) yeah i think this is his best movie hmm you know what i would stand by that agreement if someone said you gotta watch one tarantino movie i'd be like uh show me once upon a time in hollywood yeah i think that as far as a movie where people are like nothing happens in it i think that its pace is the best out of all Mm. tarantino movies like some of the other one glorious bastards like some scenes just stop dead and i'm like all right and look it's not pulp fiction no it's not Kill Bill. No. It's this. Yes, that's right. I mean, we've talked about Kill Bill has only lowered in our estimation yeah. over Kill, time. Kill Bill's fine, but yeah. I mean, come on. It's it's a doorway. It's not the destination. <laughs> that's right. Well, what do you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is? It's almost like a summation I think as opposed is. to, you know, Kill Bill being a, this is stuff I like. I was quite concerned with Tarantino around the time of Hateful Eight because it felt to me like he was just leaning into all of his worst qualities, like all that overwritten dialogue, mm. the kind of, you know, ugly provocation. Uh, the, the, As Greg Zollering, if yeah, you will. Yeah, the, the race stuff that was in Hateful Eight. I, and the fact that it was absurdly overlong. But this one, I don't know, it seems to me like he's he's genuinely pushing himself to new levels, trying, like he's he's hitting lyrical notes that he's never, never has before. And we got to say that uh, Tarantino is now an old dad who seemingly spends his time just reviewing movies on the new Beverly website. Well, and it's a, great. He had a great article about Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. Yes. Recently. Agreeing with us that it's one of the best Bruce Plantation movies. So you know what? I like the guy. I'm in favor of him. That's right. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, you should give us a call. Uh, we'll come up to LA. Let's watch hang out. With you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
You know, he's met so many people like us. <laughs> Do you think he has? I don't think You're he right. has. You're right. You know what? You know why he hasn't? Because he's too cool. Because <laughs> he goes out clubbing. Yeah, but we'd have to be like, Tarantino, have you met uh, guys who started their own Blu-ray label? <laughs> I think not. That's right. <laughs> so Speaking of which. That's 2019, though. I thought it was a good year for movies. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a year like any other. Yeah, there okay. were good movies. There were bad movies. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, when you say, like, ah, oh, it's a good year for movies, what you're really saying is it's a good year for English language films that were fairly accessible to me. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, speaking of Blu-ray labels, big announcement of our Gold Ninja Video Important Cinema Club Bargainman Classics. What do we do, Will? We have a brand new limited edition, special edition of <laughs> the 1952 classic Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. <laughs> That's right. Um, which I realized we only talked about its director, William Bodine, on a Patreon episode. Ooh. We didn't do a main one. So people may be like, what is this? So Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla is the only feature film vehicle for Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo, who were a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis ripoff act. <laughs> Jerry Lewis still makes me laugh. Threatened legal action against this film. So this is the film that the late Jerry Lewis doesn't Did not want, want you to, to see. see. <laughs> and of course it stars Bella Lugosi. His a name a is very haggard Bella Lugosi. Haggard, drug addicted, but giving it his all. Ugh, so much of his all. Bella's good in this movie. He is good in this one. Duke and Sammy. I mean, Sam, oh, they are mm, well, good. Sammy Petrillo does a good Jerry Lewis impression if that's what you're in the market for. <laughs> yes. It's, it's the story of two hoofer comedians who are stranded on a tropical island one of them gets turned into a gorilla yeah. Bella Lugosi is a mad scientist it's directed by William Bodine who, who uh, is directed 300 plus films was known as One Shot Bodine because for his propensity to only do one take <laughs> William Bodine's like I thought that was my name for the long takes I did the Opal's like tracking shots I mean this this is essential viewing folks and have we got a package for you mm. because we have so many special features we did a full length audio commentary which I've uh, listened to because uh, I had to do some editing and I think it may be the best commentary we've ever done. There's so much to There talk was so about. much to talk about while we recorded it. So Duke, Sammy, Bella, William Bodine. Yeah. Right there. You could write books about all those guys. <laughs> yep. And if you did, we'd read them. It's also got interviews with Bella Lugosi. It's got... Uh, a, a featurette that Justin and I recorded about Lugosi's late career. It's got liner notes. It has a bonus movie, Spooks Run Wild, which features Bella and the Bowery Boys. <laughs> yes, and people know how much we love the Bowery Boys. <laughs> and best of all, we dug up and put on it Sammy Petrillo's prank phone call album from the 1960s. Produced by Dick Randall, who did Pieces and Challenge of the Tiger and For Your Height Only. This album is unavailable anywhere. And I think the magic of this album is that it's just not a recording of it. It's when you listen to it on this disc, know that me and Will are in the room, <laughs> sitting, listening to it as well. <laughs> I, do you hear us laughing at any point? Well, I mean, you were there. <laughs> do, do we laugh during this album? I, I don't think so. I mean, we get more into it in the introduction. And yeah, we record introductions for all these features as well. So it's not just like Spooks Run Wild. It's like, we'll talk about Spooks Run Wild before it plays. And then the feature plays. So, so much good content there, yes. folks. Pick it up before it's sold out. It's $10 at goldninjavideo.com. And pick up some of the other stuff that Gold Ninja Videos put out, like the Pearl Chang Collection, which came out uh, last month, which... I sold a lot of copies of, so if you want one, get it now because it's going to just run out. Actually, folks, you really should get the Pearl Chang. <laughs> you should get everything, but you should really get the Pearl Chang collection. Listen to our episode about her. Yeah. She is a discovery. Yeah, so uh, hopefully you can check that out. GoldNinjaVideo.com. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? 
we talked about Charlie Chaplin's final film, A Countess from Hong Kong, which is often regarded as like like if you're talking about, you know, what's the most underrated Chaplin uh, film? <laughs> it's like the archetype of the old out of touch director who makes one last out of touch movie. What Quentin Tarantino keeps saying that he doesn't want to do. That's what he's thinking of Charlie Hong Chaplin. Yeah. Now I love Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. He's very important to me. I've seen A Countess from Hong Kong half a dozen times. <laughs> Yep. So we're going to work through that. Yeah. And so check that out. $5 a month. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And next week, we're finally doing it, Will. We're doing a subject that people have been wanting us to talk about forever. It is Martin Scorsese. But wait, there's a twist, isn't there? We're not actually talking about any of his movies. <laughs> no, we are not. <laughs> because listen, you know what we think about those movies. I, Martin Scorsese is a director that I feel that like, if someone wants to do like a greatest hits, we will have talked about every one of his movies at some point in time. Because we've been trying to think, uh, like typically with those canonical directors, we try to do like, okay, what's what's the bad yeah, the bad movies? And we'll approach right. it that way. But with Martin Scorsese, I don't know, do you want to talk about Gangs of New York? It's <sighs> not interesting. I mean, it's not every, that bad. It's not that, it's, a, it's not I, that bad. I, I actually think Gangs of New York would make a good Patreon episode because that was also his passion project and it also reflects an era of filmmaking when it came out like if you watch mm. it it's very stylistically from that time okay, so what if we did that as the Patreon episode <laughs> next week you know what great idea so we're gonna do a Patreon episode of Gangs of New York but on the main episode we're gonna talk about Martin Scorsese's cinephilia because I think if there's any director who's known for that trait it's good old Marty we're not entirely sure everything we're gonna cover you know we're gonna talk about at least something that's an influence on him and we're gonna talk about uh, work that he has helped restore mm-hmm. uh, because he's with his uh, film foundation and his world cinema project probably more than any other living director he has he has devoted his life to championing pr- pr- restoring and preserving films by people from all over the world so we're going to talk about michael powell's peeping tom yes and i'm not sure what else we're going to talk about other than that because i do think that Martin Scorsese's preservation work is much more important than people realize. Like, a lot of films that we treat as classics now would have probably disappeared if it wasn't for Martin Scorsese. Even just using Peeping Tom as an example. Oh, yeah. Like, it's Martin Scorsese saw it, and he's like, oh, I believe that at the time he created uh, a new release of it as well. Like, they struck new prints and actually went out after its disastrous early reception. He's very much responsible for, like, the Powell and Pressburger mm-hmm. uh, canonization. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious to talk about that, and I mean, I mean, Scorsese has done stuff like, um, is it like a journey through American cinema or journey mm. through Italian cinema? There's stuff like that that also reflects him as a person. And like, what does it mean, the movies that he loves? And how does that kind of reflect on our reactions to him? Yeah. So excited to talk about that. Martin Scorsese, the cinephile. And that'll be next week. So until then, I'm Justin Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Do you still get angry, Will, or do you have a visceral reaction when you see a negative review for a film that you love? Uh, maybe occasionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, Twitter was invented so that <laughs> takes that yes. annoy you can be put into your timeline. Yeah, because then that annoyance leads to response. And I've just been thinking about this a lot, especially on Letterboxd recently, when I've been seeing like a lot of movies that I don't love just like receiving like one or one and a half star reviews. And it just made me think about like, you know, when I first got on the internet, did I did I argue with people a lot? And I feel like, I don't know if I did, but I would have more of a visceral reaction of like, I need to give a response to this. Yeah. Which is, do you think that's something that you grow out of as you go along? I definitely think I've grown out of it mm-hmm. because 
listen, the last year has been a, a bounty of takes that annoy me on the internet. Like yes. the the all the stuff, the Martin Scorsese discourse mm-hmm. over the last year. Have, at times, that's been awful. But you know what? You know what I realized? You know what? I did block the word. Uh, I think Marvel, MCU, like okay. Marvel, all that stuff. So I think uh, Martin Scorsese. Sometimes when I see people besmirching the honor of this man, mm-hmm. I think I, I have to. I remind myself he's fine. Yeah. Yeah, he's good. And, and also, you know, healthy healthy debate is good. Yeah, but it's not healthy debate. <laughs> You're right. It's not. It's not because that's debate. the argument that I have with myself is when I go to like respond to something, I'm like, well, I don't know who this person is. Yeah. Like it's not somebody that I know and I respect his opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's some rando. So yeah. me replying to it will just, you know, the reaction will be that person being like, oh yeah, but actually, and you validate. I've won. Yeah, yeah, they've won. It's just because, like, something like Letterboxd, I've seen, I guess maybe because I've been following more people, I see, like, a lot more, like, you know, one star or, or, or half star, like I said. And, like, it's weird that that star rating will sometimes make me be like, what? They gave it that? Yeah. And then I have to take a step back and be like, why does that, why do I care? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's disappointing, like, when when somebody uh, you care about or who who is your friend uh, or your lover like Justin DeClue here yeah. uh, doesn't like something. Well, you I was like. gonna say that I think that my friendship with Will, the thing that it has taught me the most, is to go. You know what? <laughs> I don't have to get angry because Will is a pro- pro- uh, provocateur. Provocateur. There you go. You know what? You're right. I yeah. Am. So sometimes I'll see it and I'll be like. You know, when I first started um, uh, following Will on social media and we started doing this podcast, I would respond to almost everything Will said. And that's not why and I, Will... And, I put, kept, I kept and you would like, get angry. I kept be like, why does Justin so mean to me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? It, it doesn't affect me. I know Will. So, like, I, I can't... You know, it'd be different if me and Will, like, we disagreed about everything. Then I'd be like, why am I hanging out with this person? We actually seem to agree on most things. Yeah, we so do we're agree actually on in front most of a mic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but off mic, we're like, fuck you, fuck yeah. you. Yeah. But, you know, I think that that is a healthy kind of attitude to have. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, the internet, especially, like, Twitter and all this stuff, what you're trying to do is you cement your own opinion to have a sense of identity. Because everybody has an opinion, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm going to get behind what I believe in and fight for it to the death because then I will be an individual as opposed to part of the mob or, you know, a variation of that, even though it's not really true. Is, is that what I do? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I just think you want attention. I, I, of course I want attention. Yeah. Why do, I have Which two podcasts. I, of course I want attention. But, but that's what I mean, that it's fine. And it's something yeah. that I think that people shouldn't take personally, yeah, which yeah, I, yeah. I do think that people... Oftentimes when they see like some people have re- replied to my letterbox reviews of like something that I didn't like, like really hurt. Mm. And I, I just want to be like, it's not like, you know, it, it's not a slight against you if you like it. Like we don't oh, have yeah, yeah. the same perspective. I think you've got to love the sin or hate the sin. <laughs> That's right. 